0: I'll see y'all later. Probably halfway through my sermon when you come back in. Okay. Is that funny? Okay. If you have a Bible, and you have one because there's one in your pew with you, open it to Mark chapter six. I'm gonna read the whole chapter, so you're gonna to want to open your Bible. It's fifty six verses, it's gonna be half my sermon. Well, that's not true, and you know it, don't you? If you have a pew Bible, it's 1,560 is the page number. If you have an iPhone, it's a— Just kidding. Yeah, I found out this week Verizon's getting the iPhone, so, yeah, I'm still not going to get one. Just kidding. I'm just stubborn. Okay, um, Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that he's been given, that's been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts— Wear sandals, but no extra tunic. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many people, sick people with oil, and healed them. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said, He's Elijah. And still others claimed, He is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod's, Herod, I'm sorry, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard that John, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came, and on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet, For his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away and by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By the time it was—this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves did you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out they had, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and set, bef- set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten were about 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when he saw, they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. and They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they landed at the Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. They ran through the whole region and carried the sick on mats wherever they, for wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into the town, villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. The word of the Lord. You know, there's an old Presbyterian manual from the late part of the 1800s that said that you couldn't have an official church service unless at least one full chapter of scripture was read. Right? But that seems long to us, doesn't it? That's probably because it was a long chapter, but um, it's just, it's amazing how times change. Okay, that's kind of a long chapter, right? How am I going to preach one sermon on that long chapter? Well, Here's how. I think the theme of that whole passage is hard-heartedness. You just find that coming up a number of times in that passage. You find it in, in Nazareth, you fi- find it in Herod Antipas, and you find it in the disciples. Right? Let's see what we're doing for these guys. Um, I remember some years ago, I spoke at, a, at the camp where I got converted, actually, a camp called Beaver Camp in New York. And there was—one of, the, um, of the lead staff members there, um, people were, were, were vexed with him because it's a fairly conservative camp, and he was just kind of like off the reservation a little bit on some of his views. And he just thought everybody who didn't agree with him was just a fuddy-duddy, ignorant conservative or something. And he was studying literature on the Ph.D. level at the University of Kentucky, and so he knew a lot. And so he and I were talking, and because, you know, no, I had a degree in theology, so I had the right to talk to him. This was one of those, you know, one of those situations— and um, he said, well, I just think people need to learn to read the Bible more critically. Right? And I realized over the course of the week that that was just kind of one of his slogans. Now here's the problem with that. And that can mean like 27 different things. That's the problem with that. It can mean some totally innocuous things that are totally right, and it can mean some things that are totally wrong. Right? If you say you need to read the Bible critically, you can mean at least this. You can mean reading it self-consciously that you're reading it. Right? Knowing that it's not just—the Bible's not just there, but you're there, too, and there's an interaction between the two. So you need to know what's going on in your head, not just what you're reading because the, both things are relevant, right? That's reading it critically. Or you could mean reading it and asking scientific questions of the text. So you can read the text and go, okay now, why would Mark say it that way? Or what's the Holy Spirit trying to get across by, by framing things like this, right? So you could go through and say, you know, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to put the story of John's beheading in the middle of this passage? right? It didn't even happen then. Like, it's a flashback, right? So, now that's not a wrong question, right? Because if you really want to know what God is doing in putting this passage in this chapter of Mark, you got to ask that question, or you'll just read right over and go, isn't that interesting? John got beheaded. Wasn't she a nasty little woman? Right? Or you can mean um, reading it in light of all applicable knowledge. So you can read it critically and say, okay, so Herod here, who is that? right? Because you could easily think it's the Herod from Luke 1, and it's not, right? This is Herod's son, Herod Antipas. In Luke 1, it's Herod the Great. Totally different people, different—lots of—and if you know something about Herod's family and how messed up it is, and, and if you knew if you know Herodias is Herod Antipas' niece that he married, and some things like that it sheds a little light on what's going on. And so that you could mean—read the Bible critically by knowing the historical background. That's all those so far are all good, right? Now, or you could mean um, reading it and being critical and criticizing it. (laughs) You could mean that too, right? Now, I don't want to offend people um, here because we live in Madison. Madison is an academic community, and I don't at all want to seem anti-academic. In fact, if I could convince God going to school all the time was my calling, I would certainly have it as my calling. Um, So let's just take this whole idea of critical reading and take it right out of the academic sphere and bring it right into the dinner table, right? Right? Um, You know, so you take these four things, how would you eat a dinner your wife or husband put in front of you critically, right? Maybe we should all be eating dinner a little bit more critically. I submit to you, we should. So how would you eat dinner critically? So you could say, I realize that I'm eating this dinner, and realizing that I'm eating it in the presence of my wife and my kids, so I might express thankfulness, right? Because if I just eat my dinner, and all I'm thinking about is just, oh, I'm just eating my dinner, I'm not thinking about the fact that my wife might appreciate some response. Or that I am modeling for this daughter what she ought to look like in a man showing appreciation towards a woman. I'm—you see, if I open my mind about what's happening at the dinner table and think more critically about it, i.e. ask more questions, I might realize that it matters at what decibel I go, Hmm. This you can't get food like this at a restaurant. Right? Or I could mean asking questions. I could say, "Wow, baby, this is great. Is that paprika in the sauce?" Hmm. I can ask specific questions, or I could, I could bring in all available knowledge, like I can take a bite of the soup, and in my head I can be thinking, okay, the soup has eight ingredients, it tastes like a boiled base, that's five ingredients that needed to be chopped down in the, in the soup base boiled, that's a minimum of 113 minutes just to make this, so this should affect my level of appreciation. Baby, this is awesome! (laughs) You slaved! You slaved for us! Right? Or I could eat my dinner critically and say, didn't we have this last week? (laughs) Except it was less salty then, right? And here's what I would say. I would say that as Christians, we need to learn to utilize the first three, the first three criticals, right? being aware of what we're doing, asking good questions, bringing in surrounding knowledge to help and fill out and bring color to what we know. And we need to recognize that human nature draws us like a moth to flame to the fourth. We are predisposed, we are wired to be cynically critical. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. So here's here's what I want to argue from Mark 6 to you today, is that critical cynicism— the bad kind of critical is a defense mechanism that conceals the truth, brings ruin, and inhibits faith. I put it in that order because that's the order of the text. Conceals the truth is Nazareth, brings ruin is Herod, and inhibits faith is the disciples. Okay? Critical cynicism is a defense mechanism because when we get really cynical and critical about things, it's a defense mechanism. We, we as long as we're criticizing something who's, who's in control— we are, right? As long as you're the critic, you're in control. And nothing can fool with what you've got going. You've got—your shields are up. And what comes through again and again and again in Mark's gospel is that the issue is not a lack of evidence in Jesus' greatness, but a presence of critical cynicism in the people he's ministering to. That still might be true. So let's go through three kinds of cynicism. The first is what I'll just call source cynicism, and that's Nazareth. One of the things that seems to be evident in the Gospels, and this is true in everybody's life, and everybody knows it, that's why Jesus doesn't have to quote a scripture in this passage. He just quotes an aphorism, right? And that, that is familiarity breeds contempt. We all know that. It's true. Listen, the fact is, is that um, a preacher can get up here and spout platitudes, right? And nobody will listen because they're platitudes, right? But what's probably true? That most of the platitudes are right. (laughs) Right? I mean, the fact is, is that familiarity is a counter indicator for faith. That's what we find, is that the people who know Jesus best are the people who take him the least seriously. And um, the way Mark does this, I think, is really interesting. Because um, the idea that Mark uses the most in his gospel is the, is the concept of things happening immediately. Right? Did you hear that three or four times in the reading? And then immediately this happened. And then immediately this happened. And then it, Mark, is, it's a very frenetic gospel. Everything's happening immediately. It's very dramatic, right? But then after that, the next probably most common concept is amazement. And in every place but one, people are amazed at Jesus— Jesus amazes them. There is only one place in this gospel where Jesus is the subject of the amazement, or I'm sorry, the object. He's the one amazed, right? So, in you go through in Mark two twelve, it says this amazed everyone, and they praise God, saying, "We've never seen anything like this." Right? Five twenty formerly, um, of the formerly demon possessed man. Remember this? Jesus casts out the legion of demons from. Then he goes and says all that Jesus. And the people who heard that from him were amazed at him, right? In 542, immediately the girl stood up and walked around. Jairus' daughter that he raised from the dead, right? At this, they were completely astonished, right? Oh, and there's more. There's more. Even in Nazareth, before they started getting critical, when they just listened to him teach, it said many who heard him were what? Amazed. And then the chapter ends with the disciples when he climbed in the boat with them, and they were completely amazed. So you see, Mark is like amazed, 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 amazed. But then, man, you have to just really aim this thing. All right. Please work. Oh, now it went like five forward. There we go. Um, in this one place in six six, it says, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then the way he argues this out is kind of interesting because— um, in, in the passage, there, if you look at it, it says they were amazed at Jesus. And then there's a series of three or four questions, and then it's like they took offense at him. And you're like, wait a second, I just thought they were amazed. And already they're taking offense at him. But now think about this they're, they're listening to Jesus, and they're like, man, this guy, where did he get such wisdom and such, you know, stuff? That's, this is cool. I mean, he's like the carpenter. Wait a second he's a carpenter. Like, you know, you you can like see them start to go, oh, and then, and then they go, oh, he's Mary's son. Now, look in the Bible for anywhere where anybody is referred to as the son of a mother. That never happens. Never happens. Now, it's probable that Joseph has died at this point, right? Um, This is why he's never mentioned anywhere, right? But, um, but remember Nazareth is the place where Mary became mysteriously pregnant before she got married. So by referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, it's a sense like, wait, wait a second. He's like, he's like the bastard kid of the village. So you see, they're listening to him, and he sounds wise, and he's, he, where does he get this wisdom from? And he's healed people. He's amazing. And wait, and he's a carpenter. Wait, he's a carpenter. And he's the product of his mom getting knocked up. And His whole family's here. We know them. They're not remarkable. And they start considering the source, and they go, we're not listening to this guy. Right? Now, the reason I think that that kind of source cynicism is important is because I think it's really common. Um, For example, people refer to to, um, the United States as a, in Europe, as a progressively post-Christian culture. Have you ever heard that? a post-Christian culture, meaning we're over Christianity. Now, post-Christian can mean two things in practicality. It can mean, one, people who have progressed sociologically beyond the message of Christianity, right? Well, paganism was so primitive, and then Christianity was a step in the right direction, but now that the Enlightenment has happened, and we have science and technology and iPhones and chain restaurants, we don't need that stuff anymore, right? Now, that's one thing it can mean, right? Another thing it can mean is this. People who think they know the Christian message but don't, but they're all the harder of heart because of it. Um, what I have found from talking to people about Jesus in the UK, the few times I've been there, and talking to people here mostly in our cities and more secular areas, what I find is, is I have never met a people more ignorant of Christianity. Um, I talk to people now, I've talked to people in the city of Madison, and of course I've talked to a number of places in the country, in California and Florida and New York, and I run into these people who are, vociferously against Christianity. They know that they are against Christianity, and, but they cannot answer the most elementary question about Christianity. And you ask them what a testament is, and the argument of any passage of the Bible, or if they say the Bible is full of contradictions, that you ask them just to show you one, or if you ask them about the evidence in relationship— to it. they don't—they don't—in fact, 20 years ago, if you talked to a good secularist, they could mount a pretty decent argument about why the resurrection didn't happen. You won't find that now. You walk down to the UW, you talk to some, somebody like 25 who just knows they don't want to be a Christian, and you ask them some, some questions, it, they're not evidential at all. And, and here's the thing post Christian ends up meaning in Europe and America, um, I know I don't want to be one. I don't know why, I have some bad reasons that I've picked up from TV shows, particularly Jon Stewart or something, and I have these little quips that I say, because you're not supposed to talk to me about religion, so all I need are these little sayings to put people off, to act like I know something, when if, if you're allowed to probe, you'll find out I know nothing, and so therefore I can keep Christianity at bay. That's what it really means. I've found five or six that have been really thoughtful. They've read some of the Bible. They've, they've heard some Christians talk. They've read a couple of books. They've really considered things a little bit, but I've talked to hundreds. Um, because the reality is, and because, you know, you, you, and, and, and here, one of the reasons why you know this is source cynicism is because these, the reasons that they'll actually use are beneath them. These are really smart people, okay? Mostly, these, are, these are people who are smarter than me right, that I sit down with, and they give me reasons for why Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life that are beneath them, that in any other area of their knowledge, they would never use. They would never be caught dead pumping out one of these reasons for anything other than why they don't want to be a Christian. You know, they'll come out and they'll be like, well, you know, Christianity's done a lot of awful things in the world, so it can't be true. Well, awful things have been done in the name of every idea in the history of the world. Should you therefore believe nothing Or the common denominator in every piece of moral evil that's been done in the world is human beings. But I have never seen a generation that believes more in human beings. Like, it's okay if you don't want to believe in Christianity because Christianity has done evil, but you better believe less in humans. That's all I'm saying. If evil has made a cynic out of you, you've got to be cynical about everything. You can't believe in anything because Human beings have created the reason for cynicism in everything. But nobody does that. Everybody believes in themselves. But it, what it shows is, is that we don't like the source. Now listen, that's just as true of us. It's just as true of us. It's just mutated a little differently. Right? We'll come in and—, and um, how many—I mean, I just cannot tell you how judgmental I am of preachers, okay? I am so judgmental of preachers or of people telling me anything. Um, and blowing off what God wants to tell you or me because of who's delivering or the way they're delivering or the generation they're in that's delivering or the you name it is something we allow ourselves to make an excuse Constantly. Constantly. Because the person is not in our family or in our family or because they're our spouse or because they're not our spouse or because they're our kid and it's embarrassing or because the the person delivering it's our parent or because of whatever, right? And listen, friends, we need to get this straight because there is no human source of God's truth more despisable than me. (laughs) And Listen, I'm the delivery tool for the, you know, foreseeable future for y'all. So, I mean, we're, we've got to face the fact that we cannot allow the weakness that God has providentially chosen to use in the means of the delivery of his message as a reason for blowing it off. Because even when he revealed himself in all his grace and truth and confirmed the covenant and cons- concealed his plan, con, you know, revealed his plan in history, and showed how all things true would come to pass, he did it in this human being that was despisable by his own family. We're just going to have to get over it. And you will have a hundred fantastic reasons to not listen attentively to whoever stands here for the next ten years. Me, guest preachers, other pastors, any, Anybody. You'll always have some reason to be like, well, he's too young, or he's too silly, or he's too—or or whatever. You cannot—don't be a Nazirite. Right? Don't be a Nazirite. Overlook the reason you choose to despise something and listen for what God has to tell you. There's this passage in Screwtape Letters where Lewis says it this way. Remember, this is the voice of a demon trying to teach another demon how people get away, from, keep people away from God. This, this is what he says. He said, If a man can't be cured of church going, the next, next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic while the enemy, God, wants him to be a pupil. You see, because there has been a diversification of entrepreneurial churches in America, what that has done is it's allowed the church to not decline like it has in Europe. The major reason why 2% of Europeans go to church and 36 or something percent of Americans go to church is not because Europeans are more technologically and intellectually advanced than us. That was a secularization thesis. It's been debunked for about 10, 10, 12 years now. The reason is, is that the European church was non-entrepreneurial. It was a state church. It drew mediocrity, and so it just collapsed because there wasn't any life in it because it was funded by the government. It is the separation of church and state and the entrepreneurial nature of the splits in the American church that have created the church's vibrancy in America, okay, and created an entrepreneurial American church. That's good. Here's the bad thing. The bad thing is because there's so many religious markets in Madison, you can just go shopping, That's the negative consequence to the positive historical reality of the church in America. What that means is, now listen, the fact that there are multiple churches in Madison is not necessarily a bad thing, or that you might go to another one, or have come here from another one, isn't necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing is, you could think that because that has to happen, that you therefore should sit in judgment on what's happening, which is false. That's false. False. There's a certain amount of critical nature you have to have in choosing a church. But there's a certain amount of reality that has to dawn on us all that God would have us be not a critic, but a pupil. So that you could come and you can hear a fairly disorganized, pretty mediocre sermon by somebody who delivers in a Mickey Mouse squeaky voice and still hear, in the middle of all these cliches, truths that breed life. Okay, second one, and more rapidly now. Is that critical cynicism is a defense mechanism that conceals the truth because of source, source cynicism. It also brings ruin. Um, the Herod episode in this chapter is really kind of interesting because the way Herod listens to John is the way I listen to Jesus. Um, pe- one of the things we need to realize is that people are smart enough that they, they think about the implications of a message before they believe it, right? So if I stand up here and I say, listen, um, God has appointed Jesus Christ um, to be the Savior of all mankind, all humanity. And he's, he's, um, he has said what he, what the disciples went out and preached, that everybody should repent, Meaning, turn away from the life they lived before and wholeheartedly give themselves to following Jesus and for the forgiveness of their sins and to be united with God forever. Now, you cannot hear that message and, and not think back here how that's going to affect money, sex, power, leisure. You can't. You can't go, oh, I could, I could come and believe in Jesus. That's fantastic. No, you're going to go, wait a second, what's that going to do to my vacations? Wait a second, what's that going to do to my disposable income? Wait a second, what's that going to do to my sense of freedom of linking myself in romantic relationships and unlinking myself from romantic relationships, so that there's some fun drama in my life? Everybody hears the message, connecting it to other parts of their life that they don't want to let go of. We all know that the gospel has consequences because what's—what's the message it's preached? Repent, right? That assumes that to turn to God, we turn away from other things. Well, what are those other things, and do I like them? <laughs> and the answer for most of them is, yes, I do like them. And so Herod is a lot like us in the sense that, you know, he, um, so many people were coming out to John that Josephus, uh, a writer in the first century who wrote about the politics of the area of, the, of Israel, said that Herod put John in prison because he was afraid he had so many followers that if he wanted to start a revolt, he could— and so he jailed John just to make sure that couldn't happen. And so John just kind of sat in prison. And, and Herod didn't have any interest in killing him. He just didn't want to start a revolt, and he couldn't do that from prison. So he put him in prison. But he, that meant he had access to him. And so Herod went—but but Herod also had other passions. He was, he was known for being a very licentious fellow. Um, Herodias was his half-brother's daughter. Now, his half-brother couldn't object because Herod— the gray, haired Antipas' father, had killed him for being a schemer. The idea that that scheming could have passed on to the daughter apparently didn't occur to him. So, and Herodias had already married his other brother, Philip. So she's his niece, married to his brother. Now, it's not quite as disgusting as you'd think because oh, these are all half-brothers and half-sisters, but it's still a little icky, right? Now, listen, the, the fact is, is that you don't backstab your own half-brother— who's a neighboring ruler, and divorce your princess wife, who's the daughter of a neighboring king, unless Herodias is something to look at. I'll just, I'll just say it right out, okay? I mean, the, the, the reality here is that Herodias must have been something, because she was worth all this. And so John's like, dude, you can't do that! Because Herod Antipas is ruling over the Jews, right? And the Jews have a law. One of the laws is you can't marry close family members. It's pretty black and white. And so John's like, dude, you cannot marry— first of all, you can't— mar- it says explicitly you can't marry your brother's wife if your brother's still alive, right? One. Two, you can't marry a close relative, and you're doing both. And Herod Antipas is like, what's he said? Basically, he's essentially saying, yeah, but she's hot. I mean, that's basically his attitude, right? Because he marries her. And— um, and so he—but see, it still says that Antipas liked to listen to John. He's like, he'd listen to him, and it would like puzzle him. He'd get that feeling—he'd get that dissonant feeling like, I should listen to him, but I'm not going to listen to him. I really should listen to him. But yeah, but I like what I'm doing. Right? Isn't that like you? It's like me. That's, that is the essence of what temptation is. That is, that is the critical place where faith meets idolatry. It's you hear the message, and there's part, of, there's part of you, there's the image of God that says, that's right. There's, that's true. Give yourself to that. And there's a louder voice that goes, oh no. No, 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 no. we're not doing that. That doesn't sound fun at all. But there's, there's a couple important biblical themes here. The first is that Scripture says that the louder voice is the, the voice of the life that we can't keep anyway. The idols that we want to keep, the Herodias's, um, you don't get to keep them anyway. And it, for example, you know what you know what went down with all this? Here's what, here's here's how this all went down. To marry Herodias, Herod Antipas divorced his wife. Well, his wife happened to be the princess of the neighboring Nabatean king, kingdom. Well, guess what? Daddy decided. I'm going to go kill that guy. That's what daddy decided. So he got his army together and came and declared war on Herod Antipas. Well, Herod Antipas went out to fought and lost. He got his clock cleaned. Now, meanwhile, sweet little Herodias had a brother named Agrippa. Agrippa was in Rome because he fled when his daddy was killed. Right? Apparently, Herodias was pretty enough that nobody going to behead her, but Agrippa decided to get out of town. He went to Rome. Now, he got in so much debt in Rome that he couldn't stay there. He left in disgrace, but his sister's new husband— had just built a town called Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. It's a nice little place to have a summer home. Why not go live there? So Agrippa comes and lives with Herod Antipas for three years. Just enough time to get enough dirt on him to go back to Rome and tell the emperor enough so that the emperor would exile Herod Antipas to Gaul and make Agrippa the new king of that region. So this is what the marriage to Herodias got, Herod Antipas. (laughs) His butt whooped in battle, right? Nothing but practical troubles, and then a lifetime of exile when his new wife, who was a, probably a sweet woman's little brother who was a schemer, got him exiled to modern-day France, which didn't have crepes yet, and, and, and then had to live out the rest of his days knowing that, that squeaky little jerk was ruling his country in the city he built on the Sea of Galilee with all the sun and the nice breezes and the servants and the women. You don't get to keep that life anyway. The, the, what the Bible says over and over again of the work of devils is they will take the good, the true, and the beautiful from you and over time give you nothing in return. And the other is, is that if If you make that turn, if you choose to behead the voice of John for the pleasures of Herodias, what ends up happening is you lose your capacity to really enjoy things because— here's the reality—nothing in and of itself keeps us happy for long. Something has to energize it, some kind of drama, and that drama can either come from the redemptive drama of God working in the world or the crazy senseless drama we create when we have nothing bigger than ourselves which is what screws up our lives. It's one of the reasons why one of the most important things to do with a teenager is get them hooked into Jesus' drama. Because then they have, all, then they have automatic drama in their life, so they don't have to make a bunch of it. I mean, that's one of the things, that's one of the things that, you see, when I was a teenager, I thought it was really exciting. And now as a, like a semi-grown-up, I think it's boring. I would never want to be a teenager again. Because all the drama was self-created. And so I was like, this is so bold. I mean, you, you have to create all this drama so that you can feel interesting? Like, let's go save some kids' lives in another country. Let's go teach some kid how to read so he can have a better life. Let's, let's, let's learn how to, like, be good to, in our, to our family members so there would be love and peace. Like, let's do something objectively meaningful then, that rather than just subjectively drama creating, right? I don't know if I would have paid attention to that if I was 15. And somebody said that to me. But one of the things um, that comes from this is the fact that our ability to take pleasure in the things we choose over God dull because there's nothing to infuse life into them. Um, One of the things Lewis said about this was, you know, one of the reasons why there is this passion in coming home and embracing your wife is because you had to be gone for something more important than the embrace. You see, um, For example, a romantic makeup can happen because you are an idiot, right? Or a romantic um, um, makeup can happen because you had to leave the country for a month for some important work. It's the same dynamic. So, um, you know, when I go to India for a couple weeks and I come home, I really want to see my wife, right? And the—our—you know, that encounter of coming back and seeing her again is— is spiked emotionally. Like, it's, it's, it's great. My ability to appreciate that moment has been dramatized dramatically because I went off and did some work that was more important than me being home. But then I was released from that work when it was done, and I came home, and I could see her. And, and it's essentially the same emotional dynamic than if we get in this big fight because we're both idiots, and then we finally decide that we should say we're sorry, and we come back together. See, both were drama. Both were drama. One was created by sin. The other was created by something good. And so so you see if if you reject John's voice and you go this other way what ends up happening is you 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 feed on this you either create this other drama or your pleasure's deaden those are your only two other choices that's how human psychology was designed so either you choose to destroy yourself because you have to generate drama to bring life back into the pleasures, but the drama ends up destroying the structures of the pleasures, or the pleasures themselves just drop and drop and drop. This is how, um, this is how Lewis says it uh, in the screw Tape Letters. He says, um, after a while—meaning, so for a while when you tempt somebody, to, you tempt them away from Jesus, you gotta, you got to do fun things with them. you gotta, you got to direct them to some pleasure or whatever. But he says, after a while, you won't have to do that anymore, because they'll just be escaping— he says you'll no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversations he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with people he cares nothing about and on subjects with which bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not partying, but staring at a flickering television in a cold room all the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. This, this kind of um, consequence cynicism We know the consequences of believing, so I'm not going to believe, is deadly. It's deadly. And last and quickly, there's what I call completion cynicism, and that is the disciples. That is the idea that once we um, think we know something, we think we know something, and that's wrong. It's wrong. There are a lot of things that if you know a little bit, it gets in the way of you knowing what you need to know for the thing to really work out. I mean, have you ever had that situation with your kids where they're like, look, mom and dad, I get it. And you want to be like, listen, I assure you, you don't get it. And what they meant was, I understand on this level, and you're trying to get them to that next level understanding the why and the how and the dynamics and how it works and why in the long run it turns this way and why. And all they can see is, if I concede to this, I don't go out tonight. Or she's blowing this way out of proportion because I can manage these consequences, not knowing that you can't manage those consequences. They're unmanageable. Um, one, one example of this is like, if you, if you think of sports, when I learned to play basketball, nobody told me that I didn't just need to learn to dribble. I needed to learn to dribble without thinking about dribbling and not looking at the ball. So if you learn to play basketball, and you learn to dribble, and you're like, oh, look, I'm, I can dribble. Anybody who's moderately athletic at all can dribble a basketball if they're looking at it. But here's the problem. When you get in a basketball game, this has to be totally second nature. You've got to be able to handle the ball, pick it up, pass it, catch it, without hardly looking at it, because you've got to see the rest of the floor. And so if you learn to look at the ball when you're dribbling it, you become a good dribbler and a terrible basketball player. That's what it comes down to. And so people can be like, I know how to play basketball. I can dribble. I can shoot. Well, yeah, you can do all those things by themselves. But you, you'll never put them together because you've got to look at the ball. How are you gonna, how are you gonna pass? You've got to find somebody to pass to, which means you've got to be looking at something other than the ball, for example. And so, you see, if you could, sometimes getting it on one level keeps you from getting it on another level. Now, this is dangerous for us as evangelicals because, you see, if we were Roman Catholics, we would believe that you come to Jesus and you kind of, like, grow in this emergence of grace your whole life. And the focus is on the process in a lot of Roman Catholic churches. Same with the Orthodox Church, with certain, certain kinds of churches. In evangelical church, we talk about getting saved. You get saved, you're done, right? We're saved. I believe in Jesus. We're, we're in And see, the emphasis is on salvation, which is a good emphasis because that does happen momentarily, right? We get converted. God gives regenerating grace to our hearts and transforms us. He pours out his Holy Spirit. That happens. But, you see, Jesus says that these apostles' hearts were hardened. But wait a second. They were the apostles. I mean, they weren't hardened in the sense that they wouldn't listen to Jesus. They weren't hardened in the sense that they wouldn't believe anything. They were hardened in the sense that they didn't have the capacity to get to the next level which is the middle of chapter 8. They, they were stuck. They were stuck in prophet. They were stuck in healer. They weren't—and they, they were, because they were stuck there, they weren't open to Lord, King, God, Messiah, anointed one. And here's—friends, listen, particularly if you've, if you've been in church a while, listen to me. This is how we Christians get stuck. We get stuck like the disciples get stuck. We get it to a certain level, and then we think we've got it because we sort of get it. And I'm not saying that you're not just as saved as you thought you were. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus being Lord of everything should create these ever-ongoing and increasing, oh my heavens, ama- increasing amazements so he can get in the boat and they can go, whoa, was not prepared for that. And our completion cynicism, our idea that we, well, we've already got it, can make us cynical of all the things Jesus has left to do in us. And so this essentially comes down to what I call the young mother verse in this passage. And that's where Jesus tries to get away with his disciples, and what happens? They don't even get to eat. I mean, modern preachers make a lot about this whole idea that, um, you know, Jesus took his disciples away, and they rested, and so it's good for you to have me time. Isn't it? you got to rest. Well, that's not what happens here. Jesus tries to take his disciples away from me time, but What happens? The same thing when a mother of three kids tries to put their kids down for a nap all at the same time and have some devotions. Same thing. Somebody's up, right? And all these people show up. They don't get any time away. They don't even get to eat. Jesus' rest is after he deals with the crowd, he goes and prays all night and then walks across the Sea of Galilee till he gets in the boat. That's not rest, buddy. And the reason for that is because he says this. He, he, he saw them, and it said he, com- he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's the Jesus promise of this whole passage, is that if, if we will come to Jesus and allow ourselves to be opened from, um, from source cynicism or, um, or, complete, or these different kinds of cynicism, Herod's type of cynicism and, and um, the disciples' kind, Jesus will shepherd us into a new amazement. And listen, it is a painful psychological process. It'll, it'll throw us to move away from our cynicisms and towards Jesus as a pupil. But you just, at the end of the day, got to ask yourself, are you willing to walk away from your cynical heart toward Jesus as the good shepherd who has compassion on you so that you can enter a new amazement? It's a fundamental question of Mark 6. For 2011, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, um, you would be our King and Shepherd. We pray that you would release us from these places in our hearts and these these cynical um, these cynical ideas that we have these uh, these reasons that are logically beneath us. That we use sometimes to shield parts of our lives or parts of our hearts or our whole selves from you father i pray that for everybody here that we would at another level in a new way open up to use our shepherd to follow you with our whole hearts seek to be your pupil and not just a critic of your church and father would you re-amaze us would you build a new depth of faith in us will you convert those of us who are not converted and regenerate our hearts and would you take us on and refill us with your spirit and open up um, the, the breadth and depth of the willingness that we have to follow you and love you. Would you build faith in us in a way that we haven't experienced in a long time and amaze us again? In Jesus' name, amen.